welcome to the number one. Welcome to the number one mental performance podcast on iTunes, hosted by Humble and Tim. That's it. We can we lay claim to that. It's called Swing Thoughts. Is anyone going to dispute that? No. But we'll just fake it till we make it. There's no faking. We've made it. Is there? Let me ask you a question. Is there a, a better mental performance? Golf program hosted by us? No. A billion percent. Thank you. It's uh, another episode. Um, I've had a couple people uh, say a couple things. One is, whenever I can't remember what episode we're on, I get feedback. This is apparently episode nine. See, now you don't know. I think it's ten. Nah, whatever. But the other thing I always get wrong is your website. It's O'ConnorGolf.ca. Oh, my God. There you go. Why don't you celebrate? I did. I'm over it now. Um, you can get a hold of us. Uh, we'd love you, for you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It really does make a difference. And, of course, follow us. Uh, Tim's got a, a Facebook page. I do as well. And, of course, if you uh, want to uh, check out the other podcast and a show I host, it's called The Humble and Fred Show. Years ago, when I was first um, in Toronto, I was working at Edge 102, and I got a chance to join the National Golf Club of Canada, which I've mentioned several times was a... Pretty. I always felt very lucky because, you know, growing up in Moose Jaw on a, you know, pretty, you know, humble golf course, you know, um, playing at the National was almost like surreal. And part of my education there is hanging out with a bunch of young people that sort of at the time I was 30 or 31, they were just finishing university. And it was Dave Moreland, uh, Brendan Little, Mike Weir's caddy, and our guest this morning. And I all became uh, friends. This person in particular and I spent a lot of time together uh, just being idiots. <laughs> he has uh, become one of the world's most prominent coaches. We can talk about uh, his background. and uh, But you've seen him probably on a bunch of different things. Most recently, he uh, came up with something called the Tour Striker. And please welcome to our program, Martin Chuck. How's that? Good night. Good night. Referred to, did you refer to me as we, we, we were idiots back in the day? Yes, I did. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. It is I thought fair. it would be worse than that. I was, here for a second, I was sweating, right? And then when idiots hit, I'm like, okay, good range of variety of ways. Idiots, I'll take idiots. Oh, no, we were, in fact, idiots. We were. I was really lucky. It's often, it's funny, I remember those days. Again, I, you were, there was a group of guys that were just finishing university. You were just finishing, I believe, New Mexico State. Is that not? Did you go to New Mexico or where'd you go? Yeah, no, New Mexico State. New Mexico State. I finished up. I met you. I gosh, I want to say, what time? When did you join the Nash? Was it eighty? In late eighties or early nineties? Yeah, nineteen ninety. Okay, yeah. So I was right in the middle of school. Uh, Brendan Little was my roommate, so we had a great time. And uh, yeah, now you were you were you know good golfer joining the club, and naturally gravitated to playing with a lower handicapper. So we had a we had a good time schwanking it around and. Yeah, and then the wrestling matches with white pants on. Well, that we'll, t we'll talk about the wrestling match later. But here's what happened: was I had a I had a young family, so I could only play during the day. Didn't play much on weekends. And all the guys I played with were like Martin and Brennan and and uh, Dave Moreland because they were all young guys during. They were there during the day when I was there because you were a broadcaster, right? Yes. I could get off the air at nine thirty, ten. I'd be at the golf course and we would practice and play. Dan Keo, Dan King. 
Craig Marseille, oh, yeah. uh, Kevin Baker. There was a lot of guys oh, around. A lot of good players. A lot of good players around, and I kind of got swept up in it. In fact, it was through Martin Chuck that I met Mark Evershed, and my life was never the same. But <laughs> this is say the same for a lot of people. Yeah, no kidding. But this is all by way of saying hey, that. And Martin, Martin has gone from a guy, I want to talk a little bit about the early years of a guy that, you know, college golfer, excellent, you know, amateur player. He, uh, Martin tried to play the tour and then, of course, uh, developed into one of the, uh, the great teachers. And, and we'll get to all the, the, the teaching stuff and the mental side of golf in a bit. But take us, a, a, at the time, you were about 21, 22 years old, and you thought you wanted to be a professional golfer. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and so had that, been, had that been a dream of yours? Yeah, just you, Martin, you, you can a, expand on it. Martin, this is the part where you tell us more about that. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I, I want to do that from the time I was about nine. I mean, so it was a goal of mine. It was a, I was driven driven for that from the time I was a little kid. So there's no, there wasn't like, oh, maybe I'll be a fireman. No, <laughs> a lawyer. No, I'm going to be Either? I, no, you know, when I was a hockey player, and I still play hockey, you know what? I'm going to get a shameless plug in right now. You are talking to the Chandler Adult Hockey League champion. Whoa. 2-5 to 15-16 season, yes. My team won two nights ago, and I did get a goal. It was awesome. So anyway, now I still play hockey. Men's league once a night, once a week. Love Wait it. a second. You play so hockey You play kids. hockey in Arizona or something, right? Oh, no, no. Yes, I do. Indeed. Is, so is that where all the... USA hockey is awesome. Is it? Well, I, I thought, aren't they still all skinning on their ankles? <laughs> no. oh, you're such a kid. You know what? Oh, my God. It's, uh, the men's, well, most of it, let's face it, transplant Canucks, half my team's Canadian, and then uh, a lot of northern U.S. guys. One of the better players my team grew up in Phoenix, and yeah, we all love it. You know, it's a, Patrick Kane it's my guy thing to do once a week. So you didn't want to be a hockey player. You wanted to be a golfer. And uh, when I when I met you, you had you know been you got a golf scholarship. You're playing college level golf, and uh, I thought it was pretty cool because I you know I meeting these you know sort of younger guys you know looking to be tour players, and um, that's sort of where my love of practice came because that's all we ever did. We would practice, play, practice, hang out, you know, be goofballs. But in the end, I, I watched sort of you kind of, that's something you wanted to do. Um, did you notice a big difference between college golf and uh, professional golf? You know, I, I did. I mean, it's, uh, my, my first professional tournament, I'll just share it with you. I'm playing in a San Juan Open, which was a long-time um, open pro event, which is kind of in the four corners of New Mexico, Colorado. And uh, I enter it. I'm playing really good at the time. I get paired with two older pros, so I'm 22. And I'm playing when I say older. Maybe these guys are maybe late 30s, 40. And, you know, and what I realized was they did not want me to play well. Zero camaraderie. Yeah. Um, you know, so I teed up, had a good shot down there. These guys know, knew, know each other. I get the cold shoulder. I remember vividly hitting a golf ball into some stuff on one of those, like the third or fourth hole. Assuming, you know, you get the courtesy, walk over, take a look, and kind of help a man find his ball. They didn't even come within 30 yards of me. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, I mean, zero. And so, so I thought to myself, is this really a professional golf to be? And, uh, you know, frank, and thankfully it wasn't like that. But, I mean, that was my first tournament experience in that kind of rubbish. Whereas in college, it was a bit more camaraderie. You know, maybe the first hole you're, you're nervous, and you know, I remember teeing up with Casey Martin. His first, first, uh, he's a coach of Oregon now, but played for Stanford. 
And Casey, you know, is a good college player. And I was a junior in New Mexico State, and he was a freshman at Stanford. And we were playing my tournament at New Mexico State, so we were hosting. He was he was visiting. He goes to tee it up. It literally took him three times to put his ball on the tee. He was so nervous. Wow. And uh, he flushed one down there. But, you know, the, the thing about golf is, like, I want you to play well. I just want to play better than you. Yeah. You know, I want to I want to I want to play the course better than you, but I want you to have a nice day. I just want to beat you. I don't want to beat you by being a you know an ass. I want to beat you just because I hit it a little better, maybe thought things through a little bit better, made a putt or two more. And at the end of the day, you know, it's uh, my score is lower than yours. But you know, some people don't necessarily feel that way, and that's okay. Well, I think a lot but, of people. Some people in life don't yeah. feel that that way. I mean, you know, you become a teacher, so we can we'll skip around a little bit. But you know, there's a lot of people that I've often said this. I lose nothing by you being successful. I mean, in the game of golf, obviously, if we're playing a tournament, I'd like to be successful too. And as you said, you know, maybe at the end of the day, it would be cool if I could shoot one lower than you. But in in general, I want good for you as well because it just makes it a pleasant environment to be around. Exactly. No, exactly, and and that's and that's the, the way I like the energy in the group to be. To be, I want everybody to play well. I just want to be, yeah, you know. But I want it to be a positive energy. And in in when I when I play professional golf, and I'll just share some stuff with you guys because you guys know my mentors, George Newton, Ben Kern. You know, I spent a lot of time around Evershed. You know, in my in my uh, early twenties was when I first met. Well, twenty two, twenty three is when I first met Mark. But um, there's not. It's not necessarily they, those guys were as great as they were. They weren't really um, preparing the kids to go and be and, and be completely aware of the situation of tournament golf. Um, you know, I had my success as a junior and success as an amateur, but you know, as a pro, there's you, you got to be able to really recognize weakness and not be afraid of addressing weakness and try to shore it up. Yeah, because it's it's one thing everybody loves to go practice what they're good at. They're not necessarily like to go practice what they're bad at. And you have to have that like that dose of reality to say, okay, this is what you're good at, and so let's not focus a whole lot of time on that. Let's go ahead and say this isn't this is what you're poor at, and let's try to make that a, a little bit better. You know, so in, um, in growing up as a kid at the Nash. You know, very, very lucky to be there to play and practice and be under the mentorship of those two guys. No question. But, and when I look at how coaching has evolved, even though they were the best guys possible, you know, and at the time the most knowledgeable guys possible, the process of, of coaching a kid has gotten so much better mm-hmm. that it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. Well, Marty, no, let's, let's just you know, hold hold there for a second because Tim's got a question. But we'll come back. I want to get yeah. to uh, we'll come back very quickly to how it sort of transformed or you transmogrified into a teacher. But transmogrified. Tim has a question. Yeah. I was going to say, Marty, the, those guys like uh, Ben and George Shed. How much did they coach you in terms of the? And I think you're saying, I wanted to ask like at the time about the whole idea of resiliency, of going out there and largely you're going to be on your own. You might travel in a pack, you know, on on the mini tours. But how much did they prepare you for just the rigors of the of the mental toughness that you would require? Well, you know, so I'll give you I'll throw a date at you, January twenty fourth, nineteen eighty nine. Okay, so that's the day George passed away, mm. and I, you know, and I wish he would have been around when I was trying to my you know put my toe in the water professionally. 
because he was like uh, like envision Clint Eastwood with the bad guy in front of him and Clint oh, got yeah. the big gun right well George had that level of cool yeah you know so I would have loved to have that level of cool when I was boohooing about whatever my experience was because you know not uh, you know he was a mentor but he, well, he wasn't afraid to say hey you know get off your ass and and get and, and you know get to it and nobody's gonna give it to you and you got to this is what you got to do and so it would have been nice to have him around for that because the technique stuff with George was was uh, mild stroke stuff. It wasn't like Shed was a technician. Yeah. George wasn't. George was more of a, he put uh, simple concepts together, and which was good. And, you know, and then Shed was more of a technician. Now, as far as I would have loved to have had George around when I was trying to play just for, the, for that mentorship and been there, done that, can share a bit of wisdom with you kind of for that. It's your question about resiliency. You know, I think it was something that um, you. It, I, I think I got a bit of that from hockey, and I think other other sports. I think it's critical for kids to play other sports for that reason. Like hockey, you know, if you send your son as a high level hockey player, Tim, so you understand that. I mean, you, you know, you could you could ball up and cry and go away in one hockey practice if you didn't show some toughness, and and I think other sports helped me with that. So. Mm-hmm through other sports, I think I had a bit of resiliency. And now in, in golf, man, you're naked. You're out there just, you know, you might have white pants on being ready to wrestle humble, but you're, you're generally naked to the world. you got to put a score up, and you could shoot 85 and look like an idiot. Right. Or, you know, maybe you put it all together and, you and, you know, you look pretty good because you played a good round of golf. But day in, day out, I mean, you don't know what's coming when you play golf. And you have to just kind of, you know, look at the situation and navigate, do your best no matter what. And and that's and that's tough. I mean, look at you know, look at what Mike Weir's going through right now. I mean, that's he's putting himself out there. Does he really need to? He's made enough money in his life, but yet he goes and tees it up. He's still trying to do it. You know, he cares deeply about it, and he knows that when he, you know. People are on Canadians are looking at Shot Tracker to see where he hit it. It's true. The first thing you do if you hear he's in a tournament is you like, you, you go all the way down to the. Oh, one, well, no, but you, yeah. you're trying to find his oh, name. He's, he's around 125 to 140 in the first couple of days of a tournament. But let's just go back to uh, you. You tried to you played the Canadian tour. I, this is just I'm quick. I want to get to the the idea of you becoming a teacher as quick as we can because. No it's, it's yeah. important that people understand. You know, Marty went to play amateur golf, went to university, tried the Canadian tour, and um, for a couple years thought, you know, maybe this is what I'm going to do. And then at some point, you decided, you know, I could I could kick around on this uh, and try this for ten or fifteen years. But you seem to me, and correct me if I'm wrong in terms of your timeline, it seemed to me that you very quickly came to the realization that maybe there was another place in golf for you. Yeah, so, you know, my, I, I decided to go out to the West Coast for a mini tour one year. Okay, so in, in that, I went to Palm Desert, and it's lovely out there, right? So I'm playing this mini tour basically in a dome all winter, and, and that went okay. And, you know, during my time out there, you know, I went to, a, I was working at a club part time, it was a nice club, and I'd been through some PGA stuff with Ben Kern and more went to school in New Mexico State. And, you know, then I went back to play the Canadian Tour, and, you know, that was a struggle, but it was still a fine development. I came back for the next winter. I got to know the the, the, uh, the developer of the club and some of the members, and I was getting ready to go back to play the Canadian Tour again for the third year, and then I got invited to be their head pro. 
you know, so, you know, here's a young guy. I was 26 at the time. You know, really was just kind of trying to struggle to get nickels together to, you know, make a living and some small sponsorships with friends, my father and people at the National and some small little, you know, bits and pieces from some manufacturers and things. And all of a sudden I got offered a, you know, a job, you know, that that could take some personal skills and some playing skills and some teaching skills and and I could make a living doing that, right? So, you know, I just, I kind of looked at it and go, I wasn't really ready to not play. And then all of a sudden I got presented this opportunity that was a pretty darn good one, really, for a young guy to make a living. And, um, you know, had I been a bit more of a world beater out there playing, I probably would have said, no, I'm still driven to do this to play. But I really wasn't killing anybody out there. You know, I had deficiencies in my game that were a challenge. And, uh, you know, I had that opportunity to play. I mean, to be a club pro at a nice club in Palm Desert at a young age, which guys would kill for in their own right. And I uh, went that route. You know, so I, no regrets. I mean, I had a good, uh, I I would tell you this, you know, I'm proud of myself for this. I was driven to be a good junior golfer. I did that. Wanted to get a scholarship. I did that. Wanted to play professionally and make a tour. I did that. You know, and that's where I kind of got stuck. And uh, and then, you know, I got a a nice job in the, as a club pro at a young age, and no regrets. You know, I love being around people and helping people facilitate, you know, events and, and get better at golf and a team of employees to, to uh, you know, create that nice network for members and things, and I did that. And then that, you know, my wife was the one who said, you know, hey, you're a busy coach now with this whole development of tour striker products and stuff. Let's just teach full-time. And so that's where it's kind of went. You know, player to, to you know, club pro GM to, you know, full-time uh full-time teacher so it's been good yeah so um i'd like you kind of to take me through how when you really decided on okay this teaching thing is what i'm really going to go after did you then like really just just immerse yourself completely and just did like a whole new world kind of open up to you there well you know so i I started teaching working for george newton when i was 16 so when george opened his buttonville range and i got my license he needed he needed guys to kind of, you know, part-time guys, Moreland, um, Brendan Little, um, you know, Paul Newton, his son. You know, so he opened that range at Bunville. And so his whole thing was, you know, join the range, go through George's um, basic stuff so you have a clue. And then there'd be these young guys, which I was one of, to kind of walk the range and, you know, kind of profess George's stuff, which I did. And I had no problem saying hello to people and, saying, okay, this is what George would do, and blah, blah, blah. So I got, I cut my teeth, so to speak, at that range at Buttonville for a couple summers, part-time, you know, maybe. I used to, uh, I used to I would do, there. Yeah, so I'd, I'd maybe do 10 hours a week, or, you know, it wasn't much, but I'd, it was fun for me. And there was Greg Beal, was another guy who was there. Yeah. A lot of fun. Anyway, you know, so I, I quickly realized that I kind of enjoyed that. And then whenever I had the opportunity to teach as an assistant pro, I spent some time in El Paso, Texas, getting my in college doing internships, you know, people gravitated toward me teaching and I enjoyed it and I made extra money. So, man, this is fun. So I had always had that little um, ability to communicate to people in a way that they felt comfortable, which I, you know, which was nice. I could play so they could look at that and go, well, he can kind of hit it. So I kind of want to hit it like him. And so the two kind of lent themselves to one another. Now, frankly, to be a teacher and make a living, that's tough. You know, I used to look at it and go, well, gosh, you got to stand on the range all day. You make X amount of an hour. There's only so many hours in a day. Um, hmm. So I thought, well, that's, you know, I, I, God bless those guys that teach all day, I used to think. 
And then I actually got offered a teaching pro job when I was in Palm Desert to be a full-time teacher. I actually turned it down when I was about 25. And, you know, I was still going to stay in the kind of club pro role because that way, you know, you can make you can make your salary and then you can go teach your two or three hours a day and it would be supplemental and make a living. It seems so and different And so to me, now. teaching yeah. was a love. But there this... wasn't, it wasn't something that was going to completely pay the bills. And, you know, as it progressed as a club pro, I continued that theme. And then finally... With uh, and I, and I would st- I was always a reader and a studier. I'd go to seminars and I'd seek out you know the who I consider to be you know passionate knowledgeable teachers. And if they had a seminar, I'd go to it. And like you know, I spent a lot of time with Mark Vershed, who's a you know he's a wealth of knowledge. And then you know, a variety of different guys in the U.S. all the time. Mike Hebron. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Mike Hebron. You know, I consider a mentor and friend and studied him a ton and you know got to sit with him a bunch. Anyway, a lot of guys. Um, Ben Doyle, the golf machine guy, um, you name it. Mike LeBeau down here at Phoenix is a mentor of mine. Tons of them, too many to mention. Anyway, when the Tour Striker products came on, you know, and then that whole thing was a platform that blew up for me in a good way where we sold a product that inspired a certain change of somebody's intent on how they hit a golf ball. Now those people would watch a video with me and say, man, that, that Marty guy, he looks like a, a, a guy I'd like to spend some time with. He looks like he knows what he's talking about. Then the phone started ringing. Hey, I'm going to be in Bend, Oregon, because that's where I was at the time. Kind of come out and see you for a lesson. And that happened more and more and more. And then we started making some money from selling the product that kind of replaced what I made as a, as a GM club pro. And that's when my wife said, you know, why don't you just teach? Because people, you know, want to come see you as a teacher. And what, you know, forget about the soup of the day and dealing with weddings. And, <laughs> you know, that's great funny. Idea. It's like you're about to work on some kid. He's getting him ready for college, and someone says, uh, "Mr. Mr. Chuck, should we have the potato cream?" For? You're like, I don't know. Whatever. So Talk to potato someone. Leak. It was potato, potato leak. leak humble. Um, let's talk yeah. about. So that that brings us to where you're at now. You're at the Raven Golf Club in uh, where is that? In Arizona? Is that someplace? Phoenix, Phoenix, Phoenix Arizona. Arizona. Um, you are. It's called the Tour Striker Academy. And when you put on yep. a clinic, it's a pretty personal thing. You're only doing you know sort of smaller groups. But this is your full time gig most of the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're up to date on where you're at. It only took 20 minutes. And now I want to talk about some philosophy stuff. So, I mean, because we could do a couple hours on uh, the minutia of, like, I mean, when I first heard that, well, we talked, when you put out the Tour Striker, I remember calling you and I was like, this is great. It's genius. And we could talk about Tour Striker. But what we're having Martin on today to talk about is a guy that has seen the game from a lot of different angles and levels. And then as a teacher, one of the things we talk about, talk a lot about on our show, which is there's a mechanical side to the game and then there's a mental side. So let's start with you. Absolutely. You know, we all three of us have, you know, a lot of guys in common, Evershed, Kern. I mean, we have a, we know a lot of the same people. I mean, one Mm -hmm. of the, listen, I spent five years with Mark Evershed who's been on our show, because of one conversation mm-hmm. I had with you. You don't remember it, but you came back from a lesson one day, and I was on the range, and we were talking about the swing, and you went, I met this guy. <laughs> and, uh, and you won't I, forget him. And you, you said to me, I met this guy. He'd be great for you. And I was like, okay, all right, Marty. And that was mm-hmm. five years of me going to see Mark Evershed. And, mm-hmm. and, and it was great. I mean, I learned a lot, and, and whatever... 
it was a great experience. But now let's talk about how you or your teaching mechanically impacts how you deal with people, knowing that there's a huge mental side to things. Well, you know, that's a great question because I, I, I try to look at every golfer as a completely, you know, the, to me, if you're, you know, if you're a hammer, everybody better be a nail, right? So you've heard that before. But I look at every golfer as, you know, I'm trying to look way past the skin and into their soul almost because I'm trying to find out what their intent is. You know, like what is their intent? How do they see a ball on the ground? What is, how, do they, how do they think this tool is supposed to work? Um, where do they, do they have any sense of strategy? Um, if they do, you know, how does it all play in? Because I'm trying to look at this as like a holistic thing with, with these golfers. Just a real quick thing about the academy. You know, basically every weekend I do a, a golf school for 12 people. I've got myself and my three assistants who I love dearly. They're like brothers and sisters to me and my assistants. These people come in from all over the world every weekend to the Raven. So it's a blast. We go hard from October to mid-May, then we take it on the road. On Tuesdays and Wednesdays, I teach privately to, you know, half-day, full-day clients that come in from wherever they come in from. And and that's that's a lot of fun. So getting these folks in, like the typical demographic of who I teach, I either teach really, really high-level younger people, like Nick Taylor and some other, you know, really good Canadian kids, or I teach the demographic of 50 and older, okay, who have played golf for a while and they're at their 14 handicap or 22 handicap or 9 handicap and they're trying to, they feel they got something more inside them and they're trying to get it drawn out of them. So that's how I look at it. And so upon a review of what I'm seeing, you know, I'll see some tendencies. Some of them might be related to some of their physiology or, you know, some of their body might be tight or some things are not going to work like you might see, say, Nick Taylor swing it, okay? But, you know, there's workarounds for all of that. And if if a guy's got a really, like, a bad um, right rotator cuff and he can't externally rotate his right arm, which is a common move you're going to look for in a, in a, in a typically good swing, fine. There's, there's ways to kind of aim him differently to get the club path to behave differently. I'll tell you what, what's been a big thing for me, Howard, is kind of, I always joke with my friends because they always know that I, they, one of my buddies said, you know what, you won't be out tech. Huh. And I go, funny you say that because you're right, I won't. As far as tech goes, my studio got it all. Now, I don't use it all. I, I use the tech that I think somebody will respond to so that I can not not stuff an argument in the face but make them agree that something, that this isn't what they want via some data. And then once they see the data, then I then it's, I don't even use it anymore until we want to retest them. Like for example, TrackMan's a great tool, or 3D motion analysis is a great tool. Um, weight pressure mat's a great tool because once they go, yep, you're right, that's not what that guy does, or yep, you're right, that club path will never produce a draw that starts to the right and comes back to the left. Now you got them because they have to believe first that you know what you're doing. They have to see first that yep, that's that's a deficiency. Then, then you can start down the road of here's how we're going to take that deficiency and give you provide you some feedback and feelings so that you, you know you can get more what your desired result is. So, you know, taking somebody from uh, you know a slicer that sliced it all their life to hitting draws begins you know begins as an understanding. Then it can start to come out you know physically. So it starts mental, and then you know you get that approval from them. 
and then it becomes you know becomes a physical thing. So you know, I, I throw that back at you because that's that's sort of how I work. I try to get the agree, you know. No, but, yeah, so I, I hear what you're saying. You're saying there's like there's a, a mental sort of um, affirmation you get that they're understanding you intellectually versus it's a physical feeling. But I think what mm-hmm. I, I also want you to talk about is, you know, teaching and we've asked several teachers uh, this and golf instructors, knowing that we all know from playing the game that a lot of your 14 to 18 handicap doesn't really have a lot some of it has to do with the fact you can't hit it very well but part of it is you hit it well enough to probably shoot lower if you just had a different mental approach to the game game itself do you know what i'm saying yeah no completely absolutely the um you know mental approach i when when you have a guy when you i'm sorry go ahead no newton used to make us do something after every shot okay he used to have us reflect on every shot. We used to stand there and balance and reflect, right? Well, mentally, there's three shots that can happen in golf. A good one, a bad one, or an indifferent one. And as long as there's a bunch of indifference with a little smackling of good in there <laughs> and not that many bad ones, golf is good. Now, I would tell you this. I'm way more easy on myself than most amateurs are. Okay, They look at a, at a high-level player and they look at us like, we're going to take a, uh, like I'll use a shooting analogy, like a sniper rifle, and every shot I take is like a perfect on the target, like a perfect shot, okay, when the reality is it's nothing nothing like that, okay, the real, it's, more, it's more of a buckshot that has a general theme to it. The amateurs that come see me, and we sit around on day one, and, and we meet on Thursdays, you know, to get together for practice. And the first thing they say is they want to be more consistent. Exactly. Okay, so they're, they're, in their mind, they see consistency as a, you know, moving it down the fairway in a similar fashion all the time. Okay, I tell them that you can go take a golf ball, and don't, you can't put it right behind the tree, but you can put it on the hillside, give me a little bit of room, put it behind the tree, put it anywhere out there, and I'm going to fashion a shot somehow that gets by or on the green, and then I'm going to maybe get it up and down, or, you know, if I'm putting decent that day, I'm going to get it up and down most of the time. Chip it to two feet, to eight feet, to six feet, to ten feet, whatever I chip it to from around or, or just two putt. So I always say, you know, if you're the master of variability, then in essence, you are consistent. So, it's, you know, so they look at it differently. They want to be perfect. I don't want them to be perfect. I want them to learn a variety of fields and things and a little hook shot, a little slice shot, a high shot, a low shot. Not trying to be this, you know, the same shot all the time because that's not realistic. And then when they practice, they always try to get better on a range, on a flat surface, right. typically on a mat. Perfect lie. And they're developing, you know, they're developing a feedback off of a mat that, that has nothing to do with real-world golf. So when you introduce variability there and you kind of interleave like downhill, uphill, side hill, you know, different lie conditions. Now you're creating somebody that's got a wealth of skill rather than, you know, standing there trying to hit this ball off of a mat. I got to tell you, that's going to be one of that's got to be one of our. I mean, I'm the the master variability is a great phrase, and that idea that high handicappers think us low handicappers are hitting every shot on the button. It's nope. just that. 
And, and, and who, who everyone listening has said that, oh, man, if I could just hit it like you or I could just be more consistent. But it isn't. It's the, it's the consistent variability that we all deal with in a round of golf. It's that ability mm-hmm. to, 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 to manufacture shots, to create. And, like, um, yeah. we've used it a few times here, the art of golf is being out there and, and making shots happen. Not, you know, what re- another theme we've got on this show is that we're really trying to move people away from that idea of, as you talked about, consistency. Of perfection. Yeah, that they could stand on a range. And the whole idea of golf is to make pretty swings and look good on video and track, man. That's not really golf. It's more like what you're talking right. about, for sure. But one of the things that also another theme that we've been looking at here is that even though the game, we call this show Swing Thoughts, and we talk about the thinking of the game, one of the things that really uh, jumped out at me, uh, Marty, was that in your videos, what you're talking, a lot of things you use, like you put your mind in your body. And what really struck mm-hmm. me is that in, in describing how to use your Tour Striker products is that there's not a lot of thinking going on there. It's more of using a tool. It's more of this external thing you've got. Swing it, feel it. And so just talk to me a little bit about that sort of the physical part versus the usual thing that a lot of amateurs do. And they try and think their way around the golf course, you know, and trying to move their bodies using their minds. Well, so I'm, I'm going to say in as, as few words as I can in the lesson. I'm trust me, I still talk plenty. Okay, I got a problem there, but <laughs> I want to give. That's why we've been I friends for so you, long. I know. I know. It was probably your fault. That's yeah. why you're so on the radio show. I want to. <laughs> I want to give somebody, you know, put them in a situation where they have their own internal dialogue that makes the most sense for them without me interrupting that. So, you know, with the Tour Striker Training Club, for example, somebody will look at it and figure out in their own kind of way how to make it work. Perfect. The You know, I've got seven products now. Like the Tour Striker Smart Ball is something that, you know, is used among tour players a lot. And it just fits between your forearms and it weighs nothing and you can kind of manage your arms. Yeah, what do my students so when it, when, Yeah, so when somebody's got, you know, when they don't realize that they've got this bad radius condition with their elbows separating too much and they, and they repeat this time after time after time, and then they say that, man, I topped it. I must be keeping my, I must be raising up. Well, and then you're not raising up. Your elbows separate, and that's the quickest way for a radius to get shorter. Mm-hmm. So when you put a smart ball between the forearms and they try to move that smart ball, now all of a sudden they're going to stick the club in the ground. So then they got to teach themselves to raise up appropriately, okay? So without me saying all that, if I put, if I give them a prop and then externally, like you said, they make it work in their own way, then they, then all of a sudden, wow, okay, it's theirs. They own it. And I want them to have ownership of their motion. You know, I want them to be able to look down the fairway when it matters and have ownership, not have a, you know, rely on some kind of internal feeling that they're, mm-hmm. that they're, they may or may not be able to duplicate. You know, because we all have to have ownership of a feel, and it doesn't have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, you know, like TrackMan. I love it, and I and I I love it, and I hate it. I see how some coaches use it really nicely. And I see how some coaches, you know, I don't like the way they use it. So, to me, it, it's a broad strokes. Um, you know, does your path do this? Does your path do that? Because if somebody, let's face it, if, if they slice every ball, you know, and the club hand travels across the target line, out to in, they're not going to hit draw. So you got to show them what does it feel like for you to produce a different number. Okay, well, it feels these are the feelings you need to have. And now you got a clump head that can produce a draw. So now, what did you have to feel more weight here? Did you feel your booty over here? 
Okay, what did you feel to produce that number? Good. No, I'm not going to, I don't care about all the other minutiae you can get involved in the track. And what did you feel to do that? Then let's do more of that. So, you know, kind of going down the, uh, the road of training products, if I can look at you and I can see that you have uh, some deficiency and you need to be, you need awareness in a particular area, I'm going to use a training product to give you awareness more than me just saying, hey, tuck your elbow here. Because, you know, typically people, people don't have physical awareness. They really don't. I mean, it blows my mind how unaware most golfers that struggle are mm-hmm. about where they are in space. Yeah. Right? So they need a prop to, to, to verify where they are in space because maybe that's why they're higher handicappers because they don't have that physical savvy of awareness. Yeah. And so I provide them a feedback tool that gives them a, like a pass or a fail. If they have a net, they can pass, pass, pass. Man, that feels weird. Yeah, it feels weird, but you came to me to feel different. Because the good news is you can always go back to what you've always done. No, 100%. And you're talking about the people's, uh, their awareness of their proprioceptor system. Wow, great word. Exactly. And they don't even realize it's in play at all times. Right. What where I really like where you're coming from, Marty, on this stuff is that the usual paradigm of instruction and getting better is getting a guru, an expert, and they will give you the intellectual um, piece on what they need to do. Whereas you're coming at it from that whole awareness side, which I think is is really massive for people to to understand. Is that it's their own interpretations, what they feel internally, how they've taken it in themselves. That's where I like where you're going with your with your products and your teaching approach. Is that they are able to feel these things and come aware of themselves, as you say, their body and what's happening, and take their golf right. to another level, not through sort of an intellectual construct, which which is the usual way, and hence that, to me, is why most uh, amateur golfers struggle. Well, you know, Mike Heverin's probably the biggest influencer on us because, um, and you need to get him on the show one time because it's oh, more we plan about to. we plan to learning. You know, learning skill. Like, so a neat thing for me, guys, is that I t- I've taken a piano with my kids. <laughs> okay, so You've, you're, you're starting that, to learn it too. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so I took it out with my kids. So my little guy and my daughter play piano. You know, we forced them a bit, but now they kind of dig it. And I and so my wife didn't offer up to her to take lessons. She offered me up to take lessons. I'm like, great, okay. Yeah. So now piano, right, is bloody hard. The, as an adult, you stare at all these keys. And you're like, what do I do with these things, right? You sit there, you look, you don't know what you're doing. And now, so for me, to, I've, I've enjoyed the development of it purely because I related to my coaching in golf. And in and, and golf period, so I'm enjoying the piano for the golf, believe it or not, as goofy as that sounds. No, I, but now I'm getting better that, piano. That's really cool. Because I look at this like, if I can sit to the piano for three times for five minutes a day, that's all I need to be a pretty, you know, functional piano player. Not not hours, just minutes. Because if I, if I can look at it and I can do a couple scales and play a little melody, like simple stuff, right? And then get away from it and then come back so say like this morning, first thing I do, I get up before everybody else, turn the coffee pot on, I go to the piano for five minutes, done. Play a couple little things I'm working on, and then I, and then I walk away from it, okay? And now, first thing I do when I get home, not first, but within a half an hour, I sit down and I try to do the same thing. And, I'm, and then, but not only that, I'm thinking, like today, I'll think about it for a couple minutes. You know, between setting up my lesson tea and I'm going to go meet these folks for breakfast here in a little while, so I'll leave you in five minutes. But... 
I'm going to think about some of the movement patterns I need for my piano. So the golfers out there, you know, Newton said this best to me. He said, Marty, I practice in my easy chair. And I thought, what? He goes, yeah. He goes, no, when I'm sitting there, I'll think about my emotions. And he goes, when I'm thinking about my emotions, I'm actually in motion. You know, so I thought about it, and I didn't really get it. Now it relates a lot more to me now that I think of a piano because I can literally see my hands, you know, moving and the song I'm working on. And I can see my left hand playing the chord, and I can see my right hand playing the melody. And then I try to get my golfers to do a little bit of that, too, is to kind of close their eyes and see themselves kind of go through the pattern they're trying to develop. You know, Marty, it's, you know? it's, it's, so, inter- it's interesting to me that you said, uh, you know, your kids are taking piano and you're going along with them. And, you know, one of the things, and then I'm talking as somebody that's not only taken piano but learned a, a variety of skills as a grown-up, and one of the sermons I've, I've said to people is that there, you watch children learn anything and the reason they do it so simply and easily is lack of self-consciousness and there is no other mm-hmm. thing that I've ever tried to do whether it's taking piano lessons or flying an airplane where you feel more self-conscious than you do learning to play golf in fact I don't know if this rings point. I don't yeah. know if this rings true Phenomenal. for you too but you know I don't know one guy that I play with in my whole time of uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s that was ever any good that didn't play it as a kid. I mean, it's the rare guy for a variety of reasons. You know, time, you know, how much time does an adult have to go and hit balls every day? But most mm-hmm. people that we all know that are pretty decent players all played as kids when they were... No, there's not... When they weren't no self-conscious. Doubt. Here's the thing, though. I, I, I'm convinced you give me anybody who, is, who can open a pickle jar... And, and, who, and, and to your point, Howard, you're spot on. Well, my opening spiel to my students is about patience, okay? Liking themselves. These, this isn't golf technique. Mm-hmm. This is just about, you know, how to become a good learner. You, I, I, I show, you know what I do? The first thing I do when I start my golf school is I bring somebody up and I show them how to juggle. Okay? And I say, this, come on up and somebody's giggling and I'll you know, invite a lady or a guy up and they'll stand there. And they don't know how to juggle because I'll kind of screen them. And then come on up. Okay, put two balls in your right hand, one in your left. Toss one up in the air and catch it. Okay, everybody can do that. Yay. Little clap, have a laugh. You know, and then now while that other, now put the other ball back in your hand. So I go through this little process. It takes five minutes. And then I say to them, can you juggle now? And they can't. Of course they can't. They can't even throw one ball up and the other ball and catch them both simultaneously. Can't do it. Nobody can. One in 20 people can't. I'll say to you, I can show you precisely how to do it. You can't do it. All right? Now, I'm going to show you precisely how to do some things in golf here that you can't do. But you're not disappointed you can't juggle. You didn't expect to be able to juggle. But yet you think you'd be able to hit this ball effectively at this pin. Exactly. Now, let's be super patient. I'm going to be super patient with you as a coach, more patient than you can believe. Now, I need you to be very kind to yourself and super patient because the best players, the best adults that develop as adults are the most patient and don't mind the small skills first, that like grab it onto like wax on, wax off, paint mm-hmm. the fence, Daniel saw kind of thing, right? If they, if, if the, it's the ones that want to speed past, and, oh, you know, I just hit two wedge shots. Okay, I must have that under my belt. Let's hit the three wood. No, let's not do that. Let's continue to de- keep developing this basic motion before we start to, you know, add in trying to rip a driver. All right, let's. I know you got to go, so I want to make sure we get a chance for people to go to your uh, website. It's tourstriker.com. Um, yeah. Marty's also coming up to uh, Toronto. I think uh, when I saw you last, you said you'd be here in May. 
You know what? Um, Dan you know? King, who's you know one of my best. Yeah, we had Dan, we had Dan, Dan King Dan on the show. Well. Beautiful. So Danny King and I get together. We work together at Magna Golf Club in Aurora. Yep. Um, my my summer schedule with Danny, which is a hysterically fun time, will be on touristrigger.com probably in the next week. So for any Southern Ontario folks that, that listen to this that want to come, you know, to visit with Danny and I and one of my other assistants, we have a great time at Magna. Or Maggie, as I refer to it, is <laughs> Maggie. Maggie. Yeah, but I, I think. Well, here's the thing. Well, let me. Here's all. Message me when you know, so I can yeah. uh, we can figure out maybe getting you in here. Really, you know, uh, doing the thing live in the studio would be fun to have you. Oh, I'd love to do that. It'd be great. Be great. Um, and. Uh, yeah. Listen, dude, I, I appreciate you doing this. Tourstriker.com. Uh, there's all so, sorts of uh, products and ideas. There's a pickle jar, strangely enough. I just saw that added. That's cool, <laughs> Marty. Do you want to... Because we've, we've hinted at, at this for the entire 40 minutes, but uh, I don't know what we were doing one day. We were, was, were you wearing white pants or was I wearing white pants? Or we both you were, were wearing? wearing white pants. I, yeah, I was. I was. I hadn't graduated to have the moxie to wear white pants. So I was we were, and we got into a fight. We got into a f- mock fight where we were wrestling. Something to do with a fly. We started laughing, and I was rolling around on the ground in white pants. That's pretty much. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Is that it? And on a practice tee at the national. Yeah, that was inappropriate for a member. I could get away with that because I was still quarter junior. You, you looked foolish. Me, not so much. Well, I could get away with it because, you know, I just got my own cool going. Did Ben Kern give you crap? No, Ben. <laughs> no, Ben, no. Ben would have given you crap. Uh, TourStriker.com. Ben just come look at and, me and shake his head. And uh, yeah. me too, actually. Um, it was funny because I used to bug Ben all the time. I was one of the few people that could get him to sort of kick it out of his sort of shy state. I used to bug him all the time. He, me, my favorite thing to do with Ben, when Ben would hit a shot, it would be like horrible. And he'd go, I'm so close. I'd go, you're not even in the friggin' neighborhood. So close. <laughs> close to what, Ben? You just sculled it 170 <laughs> yards. Oh, funny. Also, Revolution yeah. Golf is where you can find out. Uh, Marty's all over that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, there's so much more. I know, you, like I said, you, it's been five minutes since you said you got to go in five minutes. But thanks for doing this. All right, brothers. All the best to you guys both. Thanks for having me on. And at the very least, I'm going to come and uh, I'll come and hang out with you at Magno when you're hitting some balls. Please. All right, man. Please. Love Take it. Care. All right, guys. Marty Thank Marty. you. Chuck, look at him. There he goes. He's gone now. Let's hang up on him. Wow. A lot of stuff there. Crazy, huh? Yeah. What? It, G- give me a tour of what you wrote down there with your arrows. I like that. Yeah. Um, a lot of really interesting stuff there. I really like what he talked about in terms of he can show you as a teacher precisely how to hit certain shots, how to swing. Can you do it? No, you can't. Golfers, unfortunately, have this expectation that something that they, they came across even on the range or golf digest, they can put it on like a magic golf shirt, mm-hmm. and, all, and they can take it out with this expectation that they're going to start hitting it great and consistent as they've looked at. But what Marty's, that talk, brilliant too. what Marty's talking about there is just so bang on is that, you know, he's shown you how to precisely do it. Maybe Michael Breed on the Golf Channel shown you how to do it. Can you do it? No. You've got to be kind to yourself and patient and learn just the same way he's learning the playing the piano. But back it up, though. Even before the middle part of that sentence, back it up to the idea that we think we're going to be able to put it on and instantly know how to do it. Right. Where in no other discipline do you feel that way. 
You know, um, I took piano lessons as a kid, so I had a background in learning how to read music, and I could play guitar, and I can read notes. But you know, I went back as an adult to take piano lessons again. This is in the last 10 years, because I went, oh, I can only do this much. I wonder what it would be like to learn a little bit more. And sure, I had this great teacher, and we, and I, because I can read music, you know, maybe a little bit more advanced level, but it was difficult. They were movements that I wasn't familiar with, but I didn't get frustrated. I didn't, yeah. I didn't get mad and kick the piano. It, <laughs> I, I never, I you, never banged the keys like a. I, I never did any of that because you didn't my, put the piano down in the basement <laughs> when it was bad. That's right. I didn't. I didn't try and uh, you know. I didn't. I didn't want to talk about piano. I just you know. I would my because my expectations were that I that I wasn't going to be able to get it down. And I would practice one. Here's how my lessons went. He'd introduce a new piece. I would practice it for weeks. Yeah. And we would each week take a little bit of that piece. I never once expected it to yeah, get but what it. If, what if you invited a friend over and you had like a piano competition yeah. and he was standing there watching you? Would that be different? Maybe. But the, 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 the point being, no part of my fun enjoyment of learning had anything to do with me thinking I was ever going to expect to be amazing at it. The second thing I want to run by you that I thought was brilliant what he said was the idea that, and we sort of touched on it a bit, there's this misconception amongst most players that that good players are hitting it like a like um as he said a, a sniper a, a sniper versus the buckshot it's sort of around where you were aiming it and i'm talking you know you know you're a low handicapper so i mean i hit i hit a lot of good rounds i'll play i'll hit 11 or 12 greens but a lot of those greens and reg are like 40 feet Absolutely. you know they're not 10 and 5 feet you know i might hit you know, I'll, I'll, I would say of 12 greens, I will reasonably have on a good day three or four good chances. I'm saying under 15 feet. The rest are variations on a theme where you're a lot of them you're just hoping not to three putt. And so maybe if someone listening is you know struggling with uh, some aspect of the game to know that there's almost like a. <sighs> like you know, it's 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 hard for everyone and it's supposed to, it's not you're not supposed to be able to do it. Yeah, I think what we're coming at. Uh, as we, you know, I think we're into show 10, I think. I, mean, I whatever. Don't know. But no one knows. we're establishing some themes. And one of the things that's coming up is that this, this uh, zeal for consistency, mm-hmm. just as Marty was talking, this, this expectation that you can just you know, hit every drive is this soft little draw that nestles back into the, the middle of the fairway every hole. And that every iron is going to be on this lovely trajectory, you know. And just fall in lovely. Golf just isn't like that. We are human beings. We're different from day to day. We're different five minutes from five minutes ago. Mm-hmm. So this idea, I think that it, that maybe one of the things that's coming through is that we don't need to be this idea of Iron Byron, this machine that yeah. can hit it, and that that's not golf. Even at the highest level of the game, they don't hit it like that. It's more they're they're reacting, they're manufacturing, they're adjusting, and the, the game and you hit a shot and you do your best and you move on well i think uh yeah i don't know what it, it i was gonna say television is partly the problem but it's i mean everyone's the game is it got some built-in frustration it's been that way you know ever was but you know i think sometimes we forget that we're seeing i've said this before to you i'm sure but when we watch golf on television you're seeing the best people in the world who do that particular thing having a great week yeah 
you're not seeing the guys that are, you know, Thursday, Friday gone. If you look down, Mike Weir aside, if you look down at the 130, 40, and 50th guys in a tournament, some of those guys are shooting 78, 77, 81, 76, and these are big-name players. When we watch Jason Day, the weekend we're taping this is uh, the Arnold Palmer tournament. And you see Jason Day bombing it down the middle and sinking 20-footers, but go back and look at him three weeks ago. Didn't have a great week. I guess the, the idea being that, you know, we're playing this game. It can't always be a great, you know, you don't, you don't care if you don't have a great badminton game. You know, something just came to me. That I don't know where we could go with this, but golf's a little bit different than watching team sports on TV. When, when a team is having a bad game, you're watching that guy have a bad day. Like when Faneuf may ha- mm-hmm. was not strong in in the in the own for end. those three or four years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when, so, he was, when he wasn't strong in his own end for that half a decade. Yeah, yeah. But not to pick on poor Dion. Uh, I understand it's going better in Ottawa, but in golf, we're let watching, it go. We're I don't watching, think Dion's listening. Yeah. <laughs> In golf, we're watching the best guys all the time. Well, we can watch when leaders are starting to struggle, but in golf, you, as you say, um, you know, the show on like some guy you've never seen. There's Bill McGirt with a 60-footer. Mm-hmm. Well, he's just showing it because Bill McGirt drained it. 100%. You know, I know I said 100%. When you watch guys on Thursday and Friday who aren't making the cut, that's the reality of the game. Yes. The reality of the game is is the way we play it most of the time. I mean, you know, he talked about being a master of variability. You know, I've spent... I've spent basically January, February, and March working on my short game. Lots of chips, you know, I take the dog out. I've hit conservatively, I'm, and you know it's me, so I'm giving you a real-ish number, thousands of chips. And yet I don't still think, I don't think I've mastered it. Do I feel more confident? I feel good about it. And what, did I enjoy it? Yeah. But I haven't, t- I haven't test drive driven it yet. You know, I played a little bit in Mexico a couple weeks ago, but I, you know, it wasn't, I'm not comfortable with it, but, but so what? I've enjoyed the process. You know, I don't have it down yet, but I've enjoyed learning about how it feels when I, when I, when I, when I'm doing what I want to do, but it's, I don't think it's going to be perfect all the time. You know, one of the things he said was, you know, I'm, I'm not going to chip everything to two feet. I'm hoping to get up and down a bit more, but, you know, re- to be reasonable. I used to think, and this was where I, I went wrong, is I used to think I needed to hit everything stiff. Right. You oh, don't. Absolutely. You just need to get it within a reasonable range. Because if I'm missing six and seven greens around, I'd like to get up and down half the time. That's my goal. Yeah, That'd it, be a pretty good goal. Yeah, it, it's really so much of it is just releasing or relaxing our expectations. Like when I watch, it, something occurred to me in my last year of watching Sean. Sean, my my uh, my youngest boy, Sean, AAA player hockey, and then moved on to play Junior C. And I was watching a game, and something just came to me. What? And these are really high level players mm-hmm. uh, at the junior level. Most of they make a lot of really good passes. A lot of passes didn't work out. Do they slam their stick in frustration or berate themselves on the bench? No, it just didn't work out, and they move along. Mm-hmm. 
for golfers, some reason, we've at this higher level that we expect ourselves to knock it stiff, like you said, or every chip is going to be within tap in distance. Sorry, it just doesn't happen like that. There's too many variables, <laughs> no, for sure, and things that happen. But we still, Guile, you know, he'll hit a hit a chip maybe to four feet, and uh, don't like that. I know. Well, listen, I'm laughing because I was I was walking my dog last week and it was still kind of warm, and I have you know take three balls, and I'm I, over the course of a half an hour in that half an hour I've hit a hundred chips and I, I got to a point where I was I was trying to hit to this tree and I did three in a row and I said to myself actually said this to me shit you can't even hit three you can't hit three the same I'm like who are you talking to I'm literally out with the dog in, in a park it's, it's, and I berated myself. So my cousin's got it right. It's the devil's game. But how how could I? And I actually stopped myself and I said, you know what, dude? That's ridiculous. Because <laughs> I was mad at the fact that my contact was inconsistent to the tree while my dog was running around with a stick in its mouth. So that's your answer. Certifiably yeah, insane game. This is just nuts. But, but we need to figure out from somebody how we... And maybe that's part of the re- reason we're doing this show. Maybe that's our raison d'etre, you know, our reason to be, is it to get people to kind of think, you know what, the next time I'm playing, I'm going to pay attention to at least a little bit of this. To, you know, one of the things he said, too, about Newton. Newton had this whole thing. And I, Newton was already, I think he had already passed when I joined the National. But I feel like I knew him because I've, I've been steeped in George lore, I used oh, yeah. to call it. Everyone, you know, from Marty to Kern to Joe Rice... Everyone's got Newton stories. So one of the things Newton did at the end of his swing was he would do that thing where he would recoil and then look look at the ball or like make the, that assessment. The hands would just come. The hands down. would come down exactly. Yeah, to about waist level shaft <laughs> vertical. And anyone who knows Newton's swing knows what we're talking about. He would yeah. he would follow through and then hands would sort of sort of uh, bob down at the at the waist. Absolutely. But that was part of what he was doing was looking and assessing. Um, and maybe that's that's what you do. You assess it and then you just move on. Yeah, well, I, that's crucial. Uh, I was working with a student yesterday, and one of the things we worked on was hit the shot, assess what happened, maybe even take a practice swing, whatever, to, to fix it, and then whatever emotion there is, and then let it go. I have an end signal. And for me, that's putting my club in the bag. I'm done with it. But, yeah, I mean. There's, Carl not, Morris has the 10-step f- rule, isn't it? Isn't that his thing? Uh, I don't, it, is that, maybe it's your no, thing. It's not, that's not Carl's piece. But the, the main thing oh, whose being. Whose piece is it? I don't know. Piece of what, Tim? Knowledge, wisdom? Um, I don't know. But if somebody has a thing where I've read this where basically you, you give yourself 10 steps after you hit. And after that 10 steps, you're done. I like having an actual signal, like where it is. Like punch yourself in the head. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah. Most guys do. (laughs) I don't like the shot. Isn't yours to slam the wedge into the toe? I will just, oh, yeah, man. I got to stop doing that. You hurt yourself? I really got to stop. But, anyways, it's okay. Hammering my foot. So, we talk about don't think and all that. It's okay to make an assessment, as Marty was saying, as George Newton used to talk. Right. You make it, and then you let it go. Right. And then you, you move on. So we got to start, because you sent me a note, we're going to start working on um, my short game routine, because uh, like I feel good about technically where it's at, um, but again, I haven't had it, I haven't really started playing for reels yet. This week, I'm going to play some. We've got to get you on like a routine. Yeah, like, that's what I want to work re- on. Where you really just, that whole thing of uh, evaluate, visualize, take it in, rehearse, shot, assess, Move on. Okay, we're going to stop this now.
Um, hey, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to subscribe to us on uh, iTunes. We have no earthly idea how many shows we've done. O'Connor Golf. Yeah, it's one of them. O'ConnorGolf.ca. We're going to be off for a couple weeks again. Happy Easter. For, yeah, Easter. Uh, for uh, the great, you know, one of the greatest players ever, Jesus. Off, awesome. <laughs> Played. Uh, great short game. Great. <laughs> had a great short game. Um, all right, everyone. We'll see you next time. Everything. A band is blowing Dixie.